Our text this morning is from Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. You will find this passage on page 863 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We continue on our journey through Luke, looking at Jesus' interactions with people. And so we come to this passage where he interacts with yet another Pharisee and a a woman of the city. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take a look at what this passage of Scripture has for us this morning. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that through your word, we would come to a place in the peace of our salvation, that our love of you would be increased by the messages you sent to us through your apostles. And I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be felt by us, would be encouraging to us, would convict us, would allow us and cause us to hear what we need to hear from the Gospel of Luke this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Last week, during the Lord's Supper, I made two statements. Uh, One statement was this, there is no one above the need for salvation. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the Scriptures teach that there is no one sinless enough to escape God's wrath. So even one sin makes us guilty of it all, and therefore there's no hope of anyone to save themselves. There's no hope of that. That's bad news. (laughs) The second statement is this. There is no one outside the reach of salvation. That's the relieving good news. 
What does the scripture mean by that statement that no sin is deep enough? There's no sin beyond the reach of Christ's power, Christ's ability, Christ's knowledge, or Christ's love. This passage, I hadn't actually uh, started preparing the sermon yet, but this passage is a historical presentation of that truth that no one can save themselves and there's no one beyond the reach of salvation. And so we have this scenario where Jesus eats with a Pharisee. He's having fellowship with a Pharisee. You look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Invitation extended. Invitation accepted. As we understand it, this was uh, not anything in particular going on here as a, a festive occasion. Uh, one of the uh, uh, commentaries I was studying this week said that in this time frame, uh, during a festive occasion where you had people at your home eating, you'd leave the doors open, which was an invitation for anyone to walk in. It's a introvert's nightmare, okay? And so people would come in, and they wouldn't eat, but they'd sit around and watch and listen what's going on. And that's why we have this other character entering the story. She wasn't invited, but we have this woman of the city in the party. She heard Jesus was coming, and she decided to join. Now, let's just be honest. <laughs> this is an awkward scenario, all right? This is so awkward. We've all been to these scenarios where everyone's having a nice time, and then someone decides to make it awkward. It's usually me, um, if I'm honest. But we've all been there. So imagine this. You're having a nice dinner party, and then what happens? What happens? A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, she, that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Awkward, okay? That's what's going on. Let's break down what's actually happening here, though. Let's understand what each of these phrases means. First, you have a woman of the city who's labeled as a sinner. You can tell by the Greek that she is labeled and well-known as a sinner because one time she clapped in church. Um, that's not really what happened. But we treat clapping sometimes like it would make us a sinner. Um, I don't know, should I? Um, not in my notes, but it happened today, folks, and we're talking about it, all right? Awkward. <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. We have a good time. We're having a good time. Okay. It's much more serious than that. She was actually a well-known prostitute. Well-known prostitute. No one asked her who she was. There was no interview to enter. So she had been in this profession in such a way that people saw her and knew what was going on. They knew what she was. They knew what she had done. Now, by this moment, this actually this scenario where she's interacting with Jesus Christ is a result of previously, at some point, hearing the message of Jesus Christ, hearing his message of rescue, hearing his message of mercy and forgiveness, her accepting that and being freed from that lifestyle. This interaction with Jesus is a result of her abandoning that thing. So we have this woman of the city with a tarnished reputation, although she is repentant of what Jesus calls sins 
many sins, he says. And she brings this thing that's called an alabaster flask of ointment. So uh, just to give you an idea what this is, alabaster is this white kind of stone. Uh, they would fill it with this oil that was infused with some sweet-smelling things, and then they would seal it. And so you literally had to break it to use it. It's not the first or it's not the last time that someone would uh, kind of reenact this anointment uh, with Jesus. But the idea here is this is an extremely valuable piece. It's a treasure. Uh, another passage where this happens to Jesus, they value that particular flask of ointment at 300 days wages. Think about that. That's almost a year's worth of salary. So she takes this thing that's probably the most valuable thing she has. If not, it's got to be close. And she brings it to anoint Jesus with it. But then things don't go quite as planned. And I love one of the commentaries and one of the I was reading this week kind of brings a new dimension. Um, it says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. One author says this. It's such a beautiful kind of perspective. It was not her original plan to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. But she became overcome with her feelings, and when she began to weep, her tears fell on his feet, and she felt the need to dry them. What a beautiful scenario. She meant to come and give him the ointment, but in seeing Jesus remembering his, his truth and thinking of what he had freed her from, she was overcome with emotion, began to weep. She was certainly planning to honor him with this expensive gift, but the emotions overcame her. Why? Because she knew what she had been saved from, and that sin was great. I want to just take a quick side note and talk a little bit, just for a second, about how we tend to handle sin in our culture. And imagine if someone had told this woman along the way, your sin is actually not that bad. Your sin is actually not that bad. What sweet worship we would not have read about. What an opportunity would have been lost if she had just thought, well, it's not so bad. He loves me as is. Instead, the greatness of her sin caused something else to occur. We dare not excuse what God does not excuse. And so in the midst of this spectacle, which is what it is, Jesus accepts her worship. And so we have this woman who has a tarnished earthly reputation. But not only that, she has no personal claim to righteousness before God. She can't say, well, I'm better now, or I have been good, or there's something I've done that makes me earn this opportunity. So this person with no reputation has nothing to lose, and what does she do with what scraps of dignity she has left? She gives them to Jesus Christ. She gives them to Jesus in worship and gratitude. Now back to those moments when we are uh, privy to awkward situations. Think back to a moment where you're having a wonderful time and those awkward situations come up. There's several reactions that happen. Um, a lot of times, especially in the South, we just ignore it. We just kind of look away, right? We just kind of smile and pretend it's not happening. If you're like me, you know that you there are certain people you can't look at because you'll lose it. You just can't. Like probably one of these two guys, if something awkward is going on right now, I'd be like, don't look at Will, don't look at John. All right, it'll be fine. All right? Others might be looking and smirking, but then we all know, and we've all been this, sometimes 
in those scenarios, we become disgusted and judgy. We become disgusted and judgy. Simon delivers on that, okay? Simon the Pharisee, look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. He's disgusted. He is judging. He's judging. Now, before we look at Christ's response to Simon's judgment of the situation, let's remind ourselves that, yes, Jesus in this story, first, is willing and gladly interacting with a person well-known for her sinfulness. That's happening. Jesus is also willing and gladly eating with this super-judgmental Pharisee. He's eating with both. He's with both. And this is still true today. Listen. If we happen to be someone who is proud, someone who's self-righteous, someone who's bitterly judgmental, listen, Jesus pursues you. He pursues you. Now, you may not want what he's offering. You may think you're doing him a favor with the life that you're living. But what does Jesus want for you? He wants you to experience what he is offering, his grace, his forgiveness, his truth, that freedom. And I heard a pastor a long time ago, much more magnanimous than me, uh, he's, he, I love this phrase, to those who are broke down, busted, and disgusted, okay? Those who are not in that last category, you know that you're a sinner. There's no state so pitiful that Christ cannot reach down and lovingly lift you up. There is no status so low that Christ won't receive your worship. Think about that. What's happening in this story? There's no loss of dignity so far gone, so unrecognizable that Christ does not know who you really are. That's the good news for all the characters who can relate to this story. We cannot hide. But the good news is we don't have to. We learn that from the story that Jesus tells. So back to the story Knowing Simon's disgusted judginess, which just rolls off the tongue. He, Jesus tells a story that uh, one person summarizes this way. Love is the proof. Love is the proof that a person has received forgiveness. And the more people are forgiven, the more they will love. That's the, the cause of that's the answer to the story, the summary of the story. So listen to this. Verses 40 through 47, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. It's a short parable. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, and it's good for us to see that those two words, I suppose, means that he was in a, a conflicting feeling towards Jesus. He knew he was going to get owned, okay? That's what's going to happen. He said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. 
From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell her her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Again, the love doesn't bring forgiveness. Forgiveness brings the love. Forgiveness brings the love. She knows what Christ has overlooked, what Christ will eventually pay for, and it causes her to love him greatly. Simon, on the other hand, believes he needs nothing from Jesus. Therefore, he treats him as such. Our love for Christ, as we turn to applying this to ourselves, our love for Christ directly correlates to what we believe he has done for us. Our love for Christ directly correlates with what we believe he has done for us. And so, church, here we go. If I want to love Jesus more, I must continue to understand how much I've been forgiven. If I want my love for Jesus to increase, I must continue to uncover just how much I have been forgiven. And so what does this require? If we're going to see our love increased for Christ, it requires the ongoing loss of our reputation. Realizing that all we have left, if we're honest, is scraps of dignity at best. And lovingly giving those scraps to the one who promises to restore us like new. Here in this passage, we have yet another interaction with Jesus Christ that calls us, how fun, to be brutally honest about our own sin. It seems like it's getting repetitive. I didn't intend for that to be something that we come back to again and again, but when Jesus Christ is in play in these passages of Scripture, he he has one message. I'm here to save you from your sins, so let's get on with labeling our sins. We must be honest about our sins and to know and believe that Christ's grace is sufficient to cover whatever we find. That's the gospel. You see, the the depth of our sin need directly translates into the height of God's grace in our lives. So the truth of the matter is the more awfulness we uncover, the more love and mercy and grace and forgiveness we discover. And so this passage, it's pointing us all in one direction, and that is toward a realization of our sin. So let's talk for a second. If, if, if an understanding of our sin increases our love, then the question is, well, what's the obstacles to increasing our love? Think about it another way. What's the way that we short-circuit our own love of Jesus Christ? Here's a few examples. Sometimes... And I think these are generally true of most of us. Sometimes we allow the fact that we've been wronged by others to short-circuit our view of our own sin. It's like a, it's like a, uh, you're trying to time it just right. Well, if I repent, what if they don't? And I repent first. Do I lose? Like, am I losing? Am I going to lose? If I humble myself and they don't, they win. Like it's some kind of, repentance chip that we have to bet on. And if I see my sin, well, what about theirs? What about their sin? 
Or if we humble ourselves, if we show our belly first, I lose. And this is all in the context of power struggle. Who wins? Who's got more power? Who has the upper hand? It's just an obstacle to our love of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we allow embarrassment to short-circuit this journey towards loving Christ more. And oftentimes, it's, it's any, there's several different ways of saying it, but really the idea is, that, well, I'm better than that. <laughs> I'm better than that. As if sin, instead of it being an affront to God and something that is produced by our sinful hearts, it's simply a momentary lapse of our normally impenetrable will. <laughs> I usually am pretty good, but this time, whoopsie. That's not what it is. When we say things like that, do you know what we're saying? Well, normally I wouldn't need Christ's salvation. Normally I'm good on my own. One thing we all love to do, in addition to these things, is use comparative righteousness. And comparative righteousness, honestly, if you're going to go with one of these, <laughs> use this one. It's a, there's an infinite number of ways to self-justify with this one. Well, at least I don't do that, or at least I'm not a drunk or as bad of a drunk as that, or at least uh, my kids behave themselves, or at least, at least, at least, at least I'm successful at my job, at least I'm a hard worker, at least I don't break the speed limit. I mean, there's literally not an end to the number of ways we can compare. Sometimes we even compare our current sins to our past sins to, as if the improvement is what God wants. And oftentimes especially in this culture, in this day and age, we just, we like our sinfulness and so we downplay or deny it. The problem with modifying scripture and calling what God calls sin as something less than that, when we do that, when we redefine sinful things, we put ourselves in a place where we don't need Christ's forgiveness. Do you see this in Simon the Pharisee? Do you see it? He had redefined righteousness, and therefore he didn't need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says he didn't need it, he didn't appreciate it. These things, church, and I'm sure there's many more, rob us of a deeper, fuller love for Jesus Christ. So listen to this. This is the truth. Only our desperate need only my desperate need, only your desperate need is met with Christ's overwhelming deliverance. You can't be delivered from something you don't need to be delivered from. And so yes, this passage is calling us to be honest about sin, but really what it's calling us toward is a, a deeper love for Jesus Christ. And there's only one path, according to Jesus Christ, where that comes from. And so let's walk through it. Three steps. First, step one, be honest about the awfulness of our sin. Let's label sin as sin. Puritan Thomas Watson says, we find as much bitterness and weeping over sin as we found sweetness in committing it. In admitting that we are sinful, we can see our need and receive from Christ. Sometimes I'll describe, and it's very uh, graphic, uh, the Christian life is like peeling a rotten onion at times. As we peel layer by layer, I was talking about something the other day, like you think control, you think you, you, you've made your way through a sin, and then what's meeting you on the other side? Yet another thing that we do, 
not according to God's law and God's love. So what do we have to do? As we peel back the stinky layers, we have to allow the grace of Christ to give us courage to do so. And as we see it, we don't have to hide from it. We don't have to run from it. We can simply call it what it is. Sin. As we venture down that road, there's a couple different ways that are good for us to keep in mind. It is certainly good to confess our sin and necessary to confess our sin before God in prayer. But there is, church, significant benefit to confessing your sin, walking together with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. And so don't do this one alone. Let's do it together. No one's better than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. Secondly, as we are honest about the awfulness of our sin, we can then honestly recognize the rescue that Jesus Christ is offering lovingly. In our need, we can see what Jesus is offering, just how valuable it is. Think about the difference between the Pharisee and the woman. What was the Pharisee doing? Like most Pharisees, he was justifying his own life. He was thinking, well, what I do is fine. Jesus needs to accept me for who I am. And where did that leave him? It left him in a place where he did not need saving. It kept him from receiving whatever salvation Christ was offering. He didn't need it. He didn't need it. But what happens with the woman of the city? She appreciates at a deep, real level the salvation of her life. She saw her sin. She saw her need. She leaped at the chance of being rescued. We can find ourselves in this place by reading the word of God and accepting the promise of the gospel is true. If we, John said it in our confession of sin, if we just look at our sin, what a hopeless, awful thing that is. But instead we have the light of God's word to tell us how he sees us, how he saves us, how he leads us, and how he changes us. And lastly, as a result of an understanding of our deep sin and God's great rescue, we can, in turn, show loving gratitude. The Pharisee, or the, the one who was forgiven little in the, in, the, in the parable, prideful, indignant, offended, and therefore received nothing. Yet we have the woman humbled, overcome, lovingly thankful for the gift she was generous given and so she responded in worship in worship let's take a look and see how the story finishes Jesus speaks to the woman he says your sins are forgiven and when those were at the table with him began to say among us who is this who even forgives sins and he says one more thing to the woman he says your faith has saved you go in peace Go in peace. And so you have this kind of juxtaposition. Those who have heard his message are confused by it. They're not peaceful right now. But the one who has heard and received and believed is able to go in peace. What more could we ever want beyond peace and salvation? And so this morning it's good for us to recognize that there is no salvation in loving our sin, avoiding our sin, 
justifying our sin. There's no salvation found there. There's no peace in keeping up appearances. If we seek peace and salvation and salvation that leads to peace, there's only one place to find it. And both of those are only found in the loving rescue of Jesus Christ from our deep sinfulness. The Lord's Supper is a way of experiencing these things. Having taken a moment earlier to confess our sins and receive forgiveness in that grace, gracious giving and receiving, what can we find peace in? The assurance of our salvation has nothing to do with us earning it. We don't have to be like a Pharisee and obey the rules at just the right way for Jesus to love us or forgive us in return. No, instead, what is it that we must do? Receive his message of grace. Receive it. Receive it as a free gift. This gift is given even though we have no good reputation. This free gift is given even though we cannot save ourselves. And so this morning, who should come and eat and have this experience if you believe that you are a sinner? Even though you may not see all your sin right now, that's a journey that we're all on. But if you believe that there's more to find, there's more unpleasantness to find, and that's true of you, you believe that no matter what you find, there's only one hope of salvation, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. If you believe those things to be true in your heart, you've professed them with your mouth, you've been baptized, you're, you're invited to come. And like we do with Christ's forgiveness, receive it as nourishment for our souls. You're invited. On the flip side saying what I said last week, if you have not received Christ in this way, the supper is not for you. And as scripture says, listen, there are more important things to address, like salvation, not whether I should have bread or juice or gluten-free or any of these things, but, but really, what do I think about what I need? Do I need salvation? And if I do, where does it come from? And here's the message. There is no one who can save themselves, but there is no one beyond the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing to answer before all this. Love to talk to you about that. If you have that question in your own life, love nothing more than to talk about that over lunch or something. Let's take a moment. Let's pray quietly to ourselves on these things. Prepare ourselves to receive the peace and the salvation of Jesus Christ as it is symbolized here in the Lord's Supper. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing in just a moment. Father in heaven, it is difficult. If we're truly honest about it, it's difficult to accept the news that we don't have what it takes to save ourselves. We would love nothing more since the Garden of Eden than to be our own God and Savior and Lord. And that is just not the reality. Every day we're confronted with scenarios that remind us of our lack of control, our lack of our ability to make things go the way we want it to go. And that, without the right 
truth. Without the truth itself can be such a hopeless and discouraging place to be. But we are not such people. We have the truth. The truth of God creating us of God seeing us in our need, knowing that we could not save ourselves, knowing the the exact nature of our mortal wound in our souls. And what does he do about it? He sees us, he loves us, and he comes to rescue us. We have the truth of Christ, God in the flesh, living a perfect life. We have the truth of Jesus Christ stepping in and taking our punishment on the cross. We have the truth of the resurrection, the greatest victory ever won. We have the truth of Christ's ascension where he advocates for us. We have the truth of his return. And all of those things are represented here in this supper. And so I pray, Lord, that whatever has been said this morning by a human mouth, that your spirit would speak to the hearts of those here who will participate and that you will say what they need to hear. The supper is so rich so meaningful, and I pray that we would have a significant experience with our the peace of our salvation in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.